Today, ours is a special privilege to have Dr. Tyler Mayfield with us. You know him as Lauren's husband. <laughs> Others know him as the A.B. Rhodes Professor of Old Testament at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary and as the faculty director of the Grawmeyer Religious Award. This is his home. He is us, and we are him. We are delighted that he's with us today. He has blessed our other services, and we look forward to this one as well. After the scripture reading, our children will be dismissed to Children's Church. Our Hebrew lesson this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. This story comes immediately after the Israelites have crafted a golden calf in disobedience to God. And God said to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord continued to say to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that God brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And God changed God's mind about the disaster that God planned to bring on God's people. The word of God for the people of God. Our children are dismissed. Will you pray with me? Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth you have for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee, ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. Amen. Who moved my cheese? It is a question asked 
in a best-selling business book, actually, and not at my dinner table. It tells the fable of two mice and two people who find themselves navigating a maze. And one day, the normal place where they typically find their cheese supply, well, it doesn't have cheese any longer. So the story tells about the four different responses these characters have to change, to a change of events. The point of the fable is to illustrate how various folks respond to change. You see, the mice apparently have been expecting things to change all along, and they've been noticing that the cheese supply is dwindling, and so when they arrive one day and there is no cheese, hey, that's okay, change is inevitable, and off they go searching for cheese in another spot. But the people, the people did not expect such a big change, and they are rather upset. The names of the people in the story, by the way, are him and haw. And so him and haw speak to each other, and finally him exclaims, who moved my cheese? I remember reading this book in college as a student leader, and I vaguely remember becoming aware, perhaps for the first time, that I'm not the biggest fan of change. Perhaps I'm not alone in finding change difficult to encounter. Maybe you've seen the cartoon drawing of the members of the pastor search committee. They are sitting around a table diligently looking at the job description that they have created that they are so proud of. And one search committee member says to the other, basically, we're looking for an innovative pastor with a fresh vision who will inspire our church to remain exactly the same. <laughs> of course, others of us have a better tolerance for change. But no matter how we feel about personal change or changes that happen in our church, you know one thing we don't like to change? God. We use metaphors of unchangeability for God. God is our rock, a strong tower, a mighty fortress. We even sing sometimes, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. We are familiar with this common and beautiful understanding of God. It even has a fancy theological name, which I'll throw out there because Dr. Tupper is here this morning. Immutable. It is the immutability of God. Try that with friends. And of course, there are biblical passages that talk about the changeless nature of God. Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the prophet Malachi says, I am the Lord, I change not. So what a scandal it must be to know the God of the Exodus story. 
Because change is precisely what Moses asks God to do in our story in Exodus 32. You see, the Israelites are camped at Mount Sinai. Moses has received the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. But Moses has been so long on the mountain that the people down below have concocted their own idea and they've pitched it to Aaron and Aaron is on board. They say, perhaps we will make our own God, our own God to worship because clearly Moses has left us. I mean, where is he? He's been gone a long time. It is a preposterous idea. A slap in the face of a God who has done so much for them. A God who liberated these captives just chapters early in this same biblical book. This God is now becoming an idol, a golden calf. So they construct this bull of gold out of their jewelry. They get so carried away and so proud of themselves in the process of building it that they decide to also build an altar to put it on top of and to declare a feast, a national holiday, so that they can spend more time in worship. But before we become too critical of the Israelites, it does sound a little bit like us, doesn't it? our ability to run headlong into big messes, our ability to be saved by God one moment only to complain and murmur in another moment, our ability to worship a God who liberates us only to have the leadership disappear for a few days. And what do you know? We're worshiping idols. Who moved my cheese, we might ask? Well, when God responds to this development that's happening down at the bottom of the mountain, God is naturally aggravated by the situation. These are stiff-necked people, God says. They can't wait even a few days without their leader before they are constructing idols. So God tells Moses something fascinating. God says to Moses, let me be, leave me alone, and let my anger burn against them. Let me consume them. This, this here is the God that we are accustomed to thinking about from the Old Testament. Angry and punishing and destructive. Here is the God we often reject. This is the type of God that leads to sermons about sinners in the hands of an angry God. God is angry and ready to destroy all of Israel. God is ready to start over with Moses. Just like in the great flood, Moses will be perhaps the new Noah who begins it all over again. But notice how Moses responds to God. God says, leave me alone. And Moses says, I won't leave you alone. I won't let you be. Just as Jacob wrestles in the night for a blessing, God will not allow, Moses will not allow God's anger to win the day. Do not let your anger burn, O God, Moses boldly says. In fact, Moses goes so far as to issue three commands to God. 
three commands that are typically watered down in English translations, you see, because translators are grow very uncomfortable here because we have entered treacherous theological territory. The first command, well, translators usually start with turn. Turn, because surely God can turn one way or turn the other way. But the Hebrew actually says repent, which is altogether scandalous. Moses demanding that God repents as if that's something that God could do. The second command, well, translators usually say something like renounce, because that seems like a godly sort of thing to do, right? Renounce the punishment. But the Hebrew actually says something closer to regret or to say I'm sorry or to change one's mind. We have entered into shaky ground concerning this God, a God who regrets. And then the third command comes, and I think the translators momentarily forget their orthodoxy here because they do translate it, remember, when they could have softened it. They could have said something like, well, you know, call to mind, recall God. But they use the word remember because surely God doesn't need to remember does God? Repent. Change your mind. Remember. What an interesting demand that Brother Moses makes to God and what an interesting God we have here in the text. So what's the result of this? What's the result of Moses' shocking demands of God? Well, God chooses the middle verb. God chooses to change God's mind to regret. The story concludes with the narrator's very simple observation that God regrets the punishment God had planned for Israel. God decides not to destroy God's people. God repents of the evil that God had dreamed up for them. The verb is really clear. It means to change one's mind. This morning I am less interested in this ultimate question of God's immutability, an ability to change. If you read the commentaries on this passage, by the way, you'll find all sorts of nuanced theological expositions defending God's unchanging nature in the face of a biblical story that points plainly to the fact that God changes God's mind. They will call attention to the notion that maybe God's will was not initially totally set at the very beginning. Not set in stone, surely, that God was just thinking of possibilities, various possibilities as to how this might go, and that God had not reached a final decision yet. You can think of God as sort of a contestant on who wants to be a millionaire, right? God hadn't said final answer yet. It was still up in the air. Perhaps that is one way to defend God's changeability here. I am less interested in that question, though, because I don't know that the authors are all that interested in that question. You see, I'm interested in why Exodus has the freedom and the audacity to tell us outright that God changes God's mind. 
And I think Exodus is trying not so much to talk about Greek philosophical notions of God's changeability and unchangeability, but the Exodus story is trying to teach us about relationship. Relationship. God is in relationship with the Israelites, and they are in relationship with God. This is a God who chooses mercy over punishment. This is, in fact, the God of the Old Testament that I am used to seeing. This is the very heart of the God of the Old Testament, a God who establishes a relationship with the people, a God who maintains that relationship no matter what the people do, and a God who values that relationship so much that God is willing to reconsider God's activities. God changes God's mind in the direction of mercy. So what are we to make of this scandalous story about God changing God's mind, about a relational God who chooses mercy? How are we to live in light of a God who changes God's mind? Let me suggest this in closing. What if we might just be called to imitate that sort of God? What if we might just be called to move from our places of punishment to show mercy? What if we might just be called to choose relationship over being right? What if we might be called to choose companionship over condemnation? What might we be called to change our minds about? Changing our minds is not a sign of weakness, by the way, but of growth and development. Being willing to lay aside who you were in order to be who you might be. How can we be called to change our minds, to open ourselves up to the future? Friends, if God can change, maybe, just maybe, we can change too. Amen.